we will continue in Samsara and Nirvana Buddha Nature. And we're in the section of the book now that is about Buddha Nature. And so it started out uh, talking about uh, the nature of the mind. And this week, and uh, the last section was uh, talking about is liberation possible? Um, so we'll continue on this week talking about how excellent qualities can be uh, can be cultivated limitlessly. Yeah. And uh, that will lead us into other topics as well. But first, let's visualize the Merrifield. Yeah who are showing the, us the example of those beings who started out uh, ignorant like us, uh, but purified their minds and became Buddhas. So we can know from their example that it's possible to do. And then visualize yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings in human form behaving themselves. And then we take refuge in the three jewels and generate bodhicitta together. So let's cultivate our motivation. And as ordinary beings with afflictions, when we look at other beings, we tend to focus on their afflictions too. And we tend to be quite intolerant of their afflictions. We don't like their anger or we don't like their greed. Unless they're on our side, then their anger against our common enemy is okay. And we like their greed if they're going to use it to give us a present. So, uh, you know, we're really rather fickle. We're not very uh, consistent friends. We're friends when we want to be and not when we don't feel like it. And so we don't become uh, very reliable and trustworthy for that reason. But when we uh, practice ethical uh, restraint, when we 
try and cultivate love and compassion for others, then um, by the mind changing, then our body and speech change, and then our relationships with change, and also how we feel about ourself changes. So our confidence increases, we see our own potential, and then we see the potential of others. And so in that way, it is possible to overcome our habitual attitude of picking faults. So let's make a resolve to do that, to do it happily. and to create a mind that, uh, or create an attitude that looks for and sees the best in others. And by continuing to do that, may we develop the love and compassion of the bodhisattvas and their wisdom, and the love, compassion, and wisdom of all the Buddhas, and work for the benefit of all these beings. So listening to teachings is one way to gather the information on how to transform our minds. And so that's what we're here to do today. So it's interesting, isn't it, how we judge people based on their body? Yeah. And here I think our friends are very good examples. Yeah. Because we look at all our different friends and their different colors and different shapes, and we judge them and evaluate them and have different expectations of them and think we know them just by their bodies. And we don't really know what's going on inside. And yet they all want happiness and don't want suffering. And they're all doing their best in their own way. Mm -hmm. They mess up sometimes, but they're doing their best. And uh, so are we. Yeah, we mess up. And we're doing our best. And so let's go forward with an acceptance that that is the way we and others grow without the expectation that we transform instantly. Okay, so to continue in this discussion about Buddha nature, yeah, so last week we talked about liber- how liberation is possible to attain. So when we were talking about is liberation possible, 
um, there were three points to talk about under that, to really think about uh, so that we can understand why it's possible. Because if we don't quite believe that liberation is possible, then we're not going to uh, want to attain it. You don't want to attain anything if you if you can't even imagine it, and you don't even you aren't even sure it exists. Okay, so uh, first we contemplate that the true nature of the mind is pure. Okay, and so this actually applies on the conventional level and the ultimate level. On both levels, we can say that the nature of the mind is pure. The, uh, the afflictions are adventitious in the sense that they have not permeated the nature of the mind, okay? And so they can be removed, kind of like uh, muddy water can be purified of the mud and the water still remains, okay? Um, and then there exists very powerful antidotes that can help us overcome the afflictions, so it isn't like, you know, there are the afflictions and then there's absolutely nothing we can do about them because they are an inherent part of the mind. So whatever we do, they're still going to be there. Or even if they aren't an inherent part of the mind, there's nothing we can do to eliminate them. But actually, you know, seeing seeing the afflictions as her- inherently existent, that that's the real thing that that keeps us thinking that you know there's no way to purify our mind because if they inhere in the nature of the mind then you know what can you do that's just like you know the nature of the mind is clear and cognizant and if anger were the nature of the mind and you can never purify it you know you couldn't be separated from the mind then, you know, there's no such thing as uh, pure the true paths or true cessations. You know, we're stuck with anger and other afflictions forever. Okay. Do you see, do you understand how that works? Yeah? Okay. So it's possible to cultivate the antidotes to them. So that's really good. So in addition to the afflictions not being the nature of the mind and how we can remove them, our good qualities can be cultivated limitlessly. Okay, So that's where we're starting tonight. So in his commentary on reliable cognition, yeah, what's the um, Sanskrit title of his work? Brahmanavartika, okay. Who's the author? Dharmakirti. So Dharmakirti explains why it is possible to cultivate the mind's excellent qualities limitlessly and to, to transform our ordinary mind into a Buddha's fully awakened mind. So there are three factors here, too, that make this possible. So the first one is the clear and cognizant nature of the mind's is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. Okay, so to develop uh, any kind of good qualities or to build anything good, you know, or anything at all, 
uh, you need a stable basis. Okay, so we're building the Buddha Hall. Uh, before they started, uh, you know, they did the excavation, but before they poured the concrete, they tested all the soil, and it was good and solid, lots of clay, you know, so it's not very good for uh, putting a sewer system a sewer system in because it doesn't absorb anything, but it's really good for building something because it's very stable and firm. Okay, so like that, you know, if there is something in us now as, as sentient beings that is stable and firm, it can be a basis for developing the good qualities. So uh, so the clear and cognizant na- nature of the mind is that stable basis. It is firm and continual. In other words, there is nothing that can cease it. So the mind, conventional nature of the mind, Moment by moment, each moment of mind produces the next moment, produces the next moment, produces the next moment. And there is nothing that can stop that. Okay, you can die, you could, you know, be, do anything in the world, but one moment of mind is always going to produce another moment of mind. Okay, so at least in terms of the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, one moment produces the next. So, you know, clearly with the afflictions, one moment of an affliction does that's manifest doesn't necessarily produce the second moment of that affliction. Because otherwise, for example, with anger, we would be continually angry. angry. There would be no way to not be angry. But what happens with the afflictions is they're manifest, and then as their energy decreases, they go into a, a dormant stage. So it becomes a seed of an infli- a, a seed of anger. And then when other conditions come, then that seed can again become a manifest uh, mental factor of anger. Okay, but so that works with you know all of our different moods and even good qualities. But with just the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, uh, that is is there every single moment. Okay. So it's firm and continual. There is nothing that can cease it. For example, if we continuously boil water, it will dry up and nothing will remain. So there is no basis for limitlessly boiling water. Okay. So there's, you know, different things that if we continually do them, at the end, it stops, you know. It's like you can run your car on petrol, and at a certain point, the petrol runs out and the car stops, okay? So that's that's something that's unstable. So that's different from the nature of the mind. Excellent qualities cannot be cultivated limitlessly on an unstable basis, such as the physical body, because the physical body falls ill, it ages, it eventually dies. Okay? So the physical body is not something stable. It faces gross impermanence, where it just completely shuts down, disintegrates, and that's it. Okay? So uh, we cannot... um, develop our good qualities limitlessly on the basis of the brain. 
because the brain, uh, you know, malfunctions as we get older. And then when we die, you know, the brain just kind of decomposes and that's it. So it's not the brain that can carry the karmic seeds into the next life. It's not the brain that carries the good qualities or even the uh, seeds of the afflictions, karmic seeds of any sort, into the next life. Because the brain of this life and the brain of next life are completely different substances. Yeah, one moment doesn't produce the next moment. Okay. However, the clear light mind is a stable and continuous basis for cultivating excellent qualities. So here it's talking about the clear light mind as being the conventional nature of the mind, just the clear and cognizant nature of the mind without any, uh, you know, of the afflictive or, you know, uh, or even virtuous mental factors manifest at that time. Okay, so however, the clear light mind is a stable and continuous basis for cultivating excellent qualities. The more we train in excellent qualities, the more those qualities will be enhanced limitlessly until they are fully perfected in the state of Buddhahood. So even though you can develop them limitlessly, you do wind up at the perfected state of, of Buddhahood where they don't need further development, okay? So that's, that's the first factor. Then the second one is the mind can be habituated to excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively. So here it's talking about two, two qualities of the mind. It's becoming habituated, which means doing something repeatedly and building it up. And, um, you know, so it can be habituated to ex uh, excellent qualities. And those qualities can be built up cumulatively in the sense of uh, what whatever you did yesterday, uh, if you keep on practicing every day, uh, whatever you do yesterday, um, it is kind of where you start for developing that good quality the next day. Okay. So listen, it'll become clear. Uh, so excellent mental qualities can be built up gradually without having to begin anew each time we focus on developing them. So now he's going to give a uh, an example of something that does not build up cumulatively. So this is a high jumper. So a high jumper cannot develop his or her ability limitlessly. Each time the bar is raised, yeah, the high jumper must cover the same distance they jumped before plus some more. Okay. So, so you can see, you know, whatever they, they gain that life, it does not, you know, you can see when you watch the Olympics or any other kind of thing, they may get this far today, but the next time they, they do the same routine, sometimes they don't even get as far as they got today, they're down here. Okay, so, uh, you know, it, you can't build up the qualities um, cumulatively because 
it, it, you know, yeah, I think you get the point. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the mind's nature is different. The energy from cultivating a quality one day remains so that if that same quality is cultivated the next day, it builds on what was previously accomplished without having to reestablish it. So you might say, well, it sure doesn't feel like that. Yesterday I had a really clear meditation and a strong feeling of compassion, and today I sit down on the same kitchen, same cushion, and I don't feel that. You know, I'm expecting to. I'm sitting there thinking, I felt it yesterday. Come on, come on, come on. That feeling should come up now. I, you know, the book said it's cumulative. Let me feel it so I can build on it. Okay. And then we say, well, wait a minute. You know, it doesn't build up cumulatively. What's happening is for it to become cumulative, we need to, you know, each time we develop it, it has to be um, become stable, yeah. So it doesn't become the next level that is the basis for building on until we get it up there and then it remains stable, okay? How do we make whatever qual- good quality we want to develop, how do we make it stable? This is why we practice, Okay, practice, familiarization, repetition, all of that is what makes whatever you attain stable so that then when you build on it, you can continually go up, okay? But if we just do a practice like once a week or once a month, uh, then there's no cumulative force that that makes whatever we have experienced uh, stable. And so naturally it, it loses energy after a while, you know, and we experience that ourselves. That's just very natural, you know, and you can see it in so many other areas of your life too. Um, you know, things that you remembered when you were kids now you can't remember. And you remember uh, your address when you were in kindergarten? Yeah, that was, yeah, I do too. And it went in quite deep, you know, because your parents, our parents made us recite it again and again, our, the address and the phone number. Yeah, in case we ever got lost, uh, we were instructed to go find a policeman and and tell him the phone number and the address, and he would take us home, right? Yeah? So we remember that. Lots of practice. Can you remember your phone number uh, from wherever you lived 10 years ago? Some people are saying yes, some people no. Oh, 10 years ago we moved, we lived here. Oh! Oh, maybe yeah, I can still remember that number. But you know, you ask, you ask, how about 25 years ago? Can you remember the phone number from 25 years ago? You can? Yeah. 
You can? Okay. Yeah. I can't remember. Huh? You didn't have a phone. Oh, you didn't have a phone. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember the number, you know, where I lived 25 years ago. Um, but, you know, our brain is older. It doesn't absorb it, the information. And also, you know, we didn't practice as much memorizing it and repeating it back and so on. So it's not uh, well ingrained in our mind. Okay. So we have to, that's where the repetition is so important. And some people just feel, oh, why do I have to do the same practice every day? It's so boring. I know these meditation points. You know, I want something exciting. Yeah. Well, you know, whether our meditation is, is exciting or not, that depends on us. Okay. It's not depending on the topic. We're the ones that have to make it interesting. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we need to practice and put energy into that and, and do it daily. And then it becomes very habitual. Yeah. And you can see this uh, very often with the older, well, also with the younger practitioners in Asia, uh, because they spend time memorizing their their daily practices, memorizing the important pujas, memorizing uh, whole texts. You know, I mean, they'll take a whole text and memorize it. So you know that that builds it up. Here, we're trying to build up the qualities, not just the memory of a text. But um, it's the same idea, yeah, familiarization, repetition. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the energy from cultivating a quality one day remains so that if that same quality is cultivated the next day, it builds on what was previously accomplished without having to reestablish it. It's like when we, we start building the walls on the Buddha hall, Okay, they'll lay one row of Foswall, and then the next day they'll come and lay the second row of the Foswall. They don't have to relay the first row, you know, on the on the second day. They can just build up. So it's the same in that way with the qualities. We do not need to exert the same degree of energy to get to the same level on the second day. And that same amount of effort will serve to increase that excellent quality. So on the second day, you don't have to put up as much energy to get here. So you can use that energy to go beyond where you were the previous day. Of course, here's the essential point. Of course, this requires consistent training on our part. Otherwise, our spiritual muscles will atrophy. Yeah. And so the, you know, the Olympic stars, when they're waiting for their, their turn to do their routine or whatever, you know, they're always practicing and repeating it again and again and again. They, you know, have some gyms or whatever, uh, you know, race tracks, um, you know, tracks that where they can run so that they can practice again and again. 
Okay, but if we practice regularly, our energy can be directed to enhancing the excellent qualities continuously until the point where they become so familiar that they are natural and spontaneous. And so this is one of the reasons why every morning when we wake up, we train our mind to develop our motivation. Today, you know, as much as possible, I will not harm others. Don't say, may I not harm others? Because may I, there's no oomph behind it. It's like you want somebody else to do it for you. It's as much as possible, I will not harm others. As much as possible, I will benefit them. As much as possible, I will renew my bodhicitta and keep it in mind as much as I can. As much as possible, I will keep uh, the idea of emptiness and dependent arising in my mind. Okay. So you make that determination in the morning, and then that helps you uh, remember those qualities during the day. And then the idea is, if we really cultivate that habit very strongly of generating our emotion when we first wake up, then when we wake up into our next life, there will be something similar going on in our mind of, you know, remembering our motivation. Okay. So that uh, the mind can become habituated to excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively. That was the second point. The third point is excellent qualities can be enhanced but never diminished by reasoning and wisdom. So this is emphasizing the importance of reasoning and wisdom, yeah, and how reasoning and wisdom will always reinforce what is accurate and true. It will never de uh, detract from that. Yeah. And reasoning and wisdom can be used to overcome what is not accurate and not true. Okay. So constructive attitudes and emotions have a valid support in reasoning and wisdom. They can never be harmed by the wisdom-realizing reality. Compassion, faith, integrity, generosity, concentration, and all other excellent qualities can be cultivated together with wisdom and are enhanced with wisdom. Okay. If we try and contemplate wisdom while we're angry, the wisdom is going to counteract the anger. Okay. But when we uh, try and cultiv cultivate compassion when, and think about wisdom, those two can be compatible. The wisdom doesn't uh, destroy the compassion. Why? Because generating compassion does not rely on grasping inherent existence. But to generate anger, that does rely on that, that kind of grasping. Without the ignorance grasping true existence, you can't generate anger, but you can generate compassion. So this is something good to think about. Why? What's the difference? Yeah. Why does wisdom, why do wisdom and uh, reasoning support the generation of compassion, 
but they act as an antidote to the generation of anger or resentment or something. So think about it, you know, why? why? How does this work? Why does it work? Okay, it's important to understand, you know, why this works. Okay, so for this reason too, those excellent qualities can be cultivated limitlessly. Yeah, because they can be uh, cultivated together with wisdom and reasoning. Okay, then there's a reflection that follows. So this is part of your homework. So first point, reflect that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. So be able to give the arguments or argument that supports that statement. Why? Yeah. Why is the clarity and cognizant nature of the mind a stable basis for ethical qualities? So, yeah, explain why. So you have to think about that. Then two, remember that the mind can become habituated to excellent qualities which can be built up cumulatively. Again, why? Yeah. How does, uh, you know, what, what is it about the mind or about those qualities that make it so that we can build them up cumulatively? Okay. Then three, contemplate that excellent qualities can be enhanced but never diminished by reasoning and wisdom. Again, why not? Yeah. Okay, so we should, be, we should think about these, and if somebody asks us a question, be able to answer it. And then four, understanding these points, feel confidence arise in yourself that with effort and training, your mind can be transformed into the mind of a Buddha. Okay. So you notice here it says, with effort and training. So the fact that the mind is a stable basis, the fact that there exist antidotes to the afflictions, the fact that the excellent qualities can be developed cumulatively, okay, um, that alone, just intellectual knowledge of that, uh, you know, doesn't really change our feeling. Yeah. And it and it doesn't make it possible. So what makes it possible to remove the afflictions and generate the good qualities is that um, we have effort, we put effort into training the mind. Okay? So, you know, coming back to what we discussed at the BBC, you know, why do we do th certain things and avoid certain things? Because if we, ha if we habituate ourselves with these kinds of behaviors, you know, in a monastic environment, then that naturally will build up our good qualities. If we, uh, you know, put ourselves in a different environment, yeah, then other qualities get stimulated and the cumulative energy of our anger builds up, okay, uh, simply by the force of being in those circumstances and the force, again, of familiarity. So that's why, you know, it can uh, take time and effort 
to slowly change our mind. You know, when we see that we have certain faults, uh, you know, that we've never really seen before, even though they've been there the whole time, you know, you know, we want them to like vanish by tomorrow, you know, but uh, we have to do it gradually, you know, and train the mind in that direction. Okay, so it's really emphasizing, um, you know, the force of causes and conditions. And so that comes up again and again, you know, everything we, we study is based on the idea of causes and conditions. Now, and creating the causes and conditions to develop certain things, not creating the causes and conditions to develop other things. Using dependent arising, especially dependent arising on, on, based on causes, as a reason to uh, prove emptiness. Okay? So this comes up again and again and again. So it's good to um, spend time when you can thinking about how causes and conditions work. I mean, this is the whole theory of, of karma. Yeah? And this is what scientists and sociologists and so on uh, base their research on, trying to find what causes and conditions bring a desired result. And, you know, they research which causes and conditions bring illness and so on. Okay. Okay, then the next topic is afflictive mental states and the nature of the mind. So one moment of an affliction such as anger has two facets. Okay, so here we're talking, uh, you know, about, um, yeah, we're, we're talking about a moment of mind that has anger in it, okay? So there's the clarity and cognizant cognizance of the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger that pollutes it. So it would be uh, actually more accurate for that first sentence is um, one moment of an afflicted mental state such as uh, an angry mental state, something like that. So, yeah, to, to really emphasize, it's a whole mental state that has the primary consciousness and the uh, mental factor of, of affliction. It's not just the mental factor. Okay, so that mental state, you have the clarity and cognizance of the, of the primary mind, the ability to reflect and know objects, Okay, and then you also have the um, mental state, I mean the um, mental factor of anger. Okay, when the, a mind of anger is manifest, you could also call it a mind of anger or mental state of anger. Um, when a mind of anger is manifest, these two cannot be separated. Okay, so the clarity and cognizance of the primary mind and the anger, you know, the non-virtue of the angry state of mind. When that mental state is manifest, in other words, when we're angry 
and we're angry right now, you know. It's not anger of the past, not anger of the future. It's right now. Okay, so when an anger manifests, of, of ang- when a mind of anger is manifest, these two cannot be separated. Does that mean that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is defiled at that time? Okay, so you have the clear and cognizant nature that is pure. But then, together with it and sharing five things in common with that primary mind is the mental factor of anger. Yeah, At that moment, these two cannot be separated. Yeah, they're, they're one nature. They're not the same, but they're one nature. They can't be separated. Yeah, but th- does that mean that the clear and cognizant nature is polluted? is non-virtuous at that time. So there's different views, different ways to answer this. So according to sutra, so this is Buddhism as explained in the sutras, yeah, um, yeah, so not in the tantras, in the sutras, from the viewpoint of that primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger, are, oh, Okay, sorry, I want to read it correctly. From the sutri, according to Sutriana, uh, from the viewpoint that the primary consciousness and the mental fang, factor of anger are concomitant in that single mental event, it is said that both are defiled. Okay, so it's specifying the sutra perspective, yeah, looking at at that primary consciousness that is together with anger. From that perspective, yeah, and they're concomitant, meaning they have five factors in common, and they're one nature. From that perspective, then both the primary consciousness, the clear and knowing, or the clear and cognizant, and the mental factor, both of them are defiled. Okay. Um, However, this is not the whole picture because anger can be extracted. So in that mental state, those two are one nature. Yeah. And if you have one, you have the other. Yeah. I mean, when you have anger, you you always must have a clear and cognizant mental state. The, the, The mental factors don't just float around by themselves. They're always part of a uh, some kind of primary consciousness. Okay, but, um, okay, so, because anger can be extracted. When the anger is counteracted, the clear and cognizant consciousness remains. This consciousness is not defiled, and its continuity can go on to awakening since clarity and cognizance are also the nature of the awakened mind. The consciousness that is clear and cognizant is said to be pure, while the mental state of anger, which cannot continue on to awakening, is afflictive and adventitious. Okay, so you're angry, 
you have the clear and cognizant nature of the primary mind. You have the mental factor of anger. Both of these are defiled. Yeah, You practice really well so that you can counteract the anger so that it does not exist again and cannot manifest again. Yeah, And you take the anger away, but the clear and cognizant nature of the primary mind still remains. Okay. Even, you know, if the anger isn't um, completely eliminated so that it never occurs again, let's say you calm down, the, the clear, clear and uh, cognizant nature of the mind then becomes pure. And, you know, because the anger is no longer defiling it. However, the seed of the anger is still there. So it's not totally pure because the potential to get angry again is still there. Okay. So the, the um, defiled nature of an angry mind cannot become a Buddhist mind. Yeah. But when that anger is extracted... It's, it might be the same continuity of the mind, even though the mind is changing moment by moment. So over here where the mind was defiled by anger, when it's purified, yeah, that continuity of that consciousness becomes pure. And that simple, clear, and cognizant nature of that mind can go on to awakening, to enlightenment, and become uh, the the Buddha's uh, omniscient mind. Okay. So, and that's because clarity and cognizance are also the nature of the of the awakened mind. The consciousness that is clear and cognizant is said to be pure, while the mental conscious uh, mental state of anger, which cannot continue on to awakening is afflictive and adventitious. Okay? So you have to think about that one. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of easy at first, but then you start thinking about it, and it kind of sounds like, oh, something can be afflictive and then become pure. How does that happen? You know, if the uh, clear and cognizant nature... And the the anger, you know, when when you're in that mental state and it's an afflictive mental state, you know, the anger and the clear and cognizant uh, nature of the mind can't be separated. At you know, at that time, how is it that later they can be separated, and that clear and cognizant nature still remains. Okay, within Tantrayana, okay, so that was the Sutrayana perspective. Within Tantrayana, both Dzogchen and the New Translation schools speak of the subtlest mind, which may be called Rikpa uh, or the primordial clear light mind. So in the Dzogchen uh, system, Rigpa is said to pervade all states of mind, whether they are coarse such as the consciousnesses manifesting during our uh, our daily life, 
you know, our sense consciousnesses are our course, our mental consciousness, thinking about things, projecting different things, worrying, that's a very gross consciousness, okay? So, but but Rigpa is said to pervade even those very gross consciousnesses, okay? Or subtle, yeah, such as the subtlest clear light mind that arises after the course consciousnesses have absorbed. For example, while dying, or I should say, uh, for example, uh, at death or during special uh, tantric meditations. Okay, so when we are dying, yeah, the uh, the elements of the body and the winds of the body can no longer act as a support for consciousnesses. So when the gross winds start to dissolve or absorb, those consciousnesses do likewise, okay? And uh, so Rigpa is said to pervade all those consciousnesses, the coarse, coarse ones and even the, the subtle, you know, uh, clear light mind and even the visions that lead up to the subtle clear light mind. Rigpa is al- always there always manifest, okay? So both sentient beings, so we're still according to, going according to Rigpa, to, according to Dzogchen here, okay? Both sentient beings, uh, wait a minute, yeah. Um, so Rigpa is undefiled, and because it pervades all mental states, the clear and cognizant aspect of those consciousnesses is undefiled. So from the viewpoint of Dzogchen, anger, you know, is undefiled because the rigpa that pervades that mental state, which is an extremely subtle consciousness, by its nature is not defiled. So it it's a kind of weird because anger is afflictive and you want to get rid of it, but from that viewpoint, it's not, that mental state is not completely defiled, okay? Because the clear and cognizant uh, aspect aren't, aren't defiled. Okay, so both sentient beings and Buddhas possess the primordially pure awareness of Rigpa. And from that perspective, yeah, from that perspective, there is no difference between them. Okay, so between sentient beings and between Buddhas, from the perspective of Rigpa existing in those beings. And, you know, they all have the primordial pure awareness. So from that perspective, Buddhas and sentient beings are no different. So this is why sometimes in Nyingma teachings, you, you hear people say, we're already enlightened, or we're already Buddhas. That's said from the perspective of, you know, all these consciousnesses having uh, the nature, you know, Rigpa being uh, there with the, all these various consciousnesses. Okay. However... There is a great difference between having and not having the two obscurations. 
So sentient beings must still practice the path because defilements do not vanish by themselves. Okay, so when people say, oh, well, you know, uh, Rigpa is is there with my anger and my attachment and everything like that, and from that perspective, uh, you know, my anger, my attachment, my vindictiveness, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're just like the Buddha's mind because they both have this primordial pure awareness of Rigpa. Yeah. So therefore, I'm already Rigpa. I mean, I'm already a Buddha. Yeah, because my mind is just like the you know, the Buddha's mind, in that regard, that particular regard, okay? But, yeah, there's a big difference between having afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations and not having them in the mind. So you can't just say, well, I have Rigpa, so I'm already Buddha, so I don't need to practice the path. Okay, because if you're, uh, you know, if you still have the two uh, obscurations, you are not a Buddha. At that moment, you have the Buddha nature, the Buddha potential, or you could say the nature of the mind is the same as the Buddha's mind, but that doesn't make you a Buddha at that moment. Okay. One time um, at Vajrapani, Lama Zopa, was uh, talking about this. And uh, I really wish I could remember the whole dialogue. I can't remember it exactly. It'd be nice to, to go back and get transcribed that little dialogue because there was a monk there who raised his hand and said to Rinpoche, well, you know, I hear that we're already Buddhas. Yeah. And so... Um, <laughs> What was it that Rinpoche said in response? Um, so Rinpoche was saying, you know, you have the potential to become a Buddha, but that doesn't mean you are a Buddha. Yeah. And so then he asked that monk, you know, in a future life, if you were born a woman, could you become pregnant? And the monk said, yes. And then Rinpoche said, are you pregnant now? And he was a fat monk. He said, uh, no. <laughs> it was really hilarious. We were all cracking up, you know. But uh, so he was really emphasizing having the potential to be something doesn't mean you are that at that moment. Okay. Um, and you find that many people don't understand this very well. And it, it comes a little bit later in the, in uh, this chapter. But some people say, you know, they, they're talking from the ultimate perspective, but they don't know the difference between the ultimate perspective and the conventional perspective, and they get the two confused. So they say, well, everything is empty, so there's no good and there's no bad, because good and bad are both empty. So how can you differentiate them? So there's no right and there's no wrong. There's nothing to practice and nothing to abandon because all of these things, 
you know, their nature is empty of inherent existence, so they're exactly the same. Okay, well, yes, that's true from the ultimate viewpoint, looking at their ultimate nature. But you always, you have to consider the conventional nature, too. Yeah. So, Because what this person is doing is they're getting so much into the ultimate nature that they're negating, you know, they're denigrating the conventionalities. And that is a big boo-boo in your realization of emptiness if you negate too much and as a result uh, you can't establish conventionalities. Yeah, because, you know, on a conventional nature, uh, on a conventional level, well, okay, your mind on the ultimate level may be empty, but on a conventional level, you have afflictions. And you have the seeds of the afflictions, and those seeds will carry the energy of the afflictions on with you, on and on and on, and they will continue to manifest. Okay? And so people don't understand that, the, the, the difference, yeah? And like I said, then they denigrate the conventional, which is big, big mistake. Because if you say that, yeah... Oh, my mind is the Buddha's mind, you know, because they both have rigpa or because they're both uh, empty of inherent existence. So I am already enlightened. So then I can act as an enlightened being, you know, and I, you know, and the Buddhas can do all sorts of things and they don't create any negative karma because they don't have any uh, obscurations. But sentient beings, cannot do those same actions because when we do them, we have a, a non-virtuous mental state and we create non-virtue, okay? But these people get it all confused in their mind. And I was at a conference once uh, with, um, it was uh, like a multi-traditional, not monastic conference, there were a lot of lay teachers there. And you know, all of a sudden, one woman uh, stood up, you know, because you know how conferences can get sometimes when people are trying to come to a conclusion and write a statement and everybody has a different idea. So there was something, you know, going on in the, in the discussion at that point. And she s stood up and she had a, uh, um, a Zabutan and she threw it. And then she picked up another one and slammed it down and threw it. And she was very proud of herself. And, you know, and she said, uh, you know, I'm showing crazy wisdom in order to, you know, break the energy of, you know, how stuck we are at this very moment. You know, and there's, there's no good and there's no bad. And so just wake up. Everybody's kind of gone. Yeah. So very confused, very confused. And, you know, and you meet people like that because you hear all these things and it'll come, you know, samsara and nirvana are the same. Yeah, you hear these kinds of things. And if you don't understand them properly, 
then you, you know, you get really confused and you don't have correct view and your mind doesn't know, you know, what, what to accept and what to abandon. Okay. In the context of all of this, when we do our, even our meditation on the Buddha and the Buddha dissolves into me and mm-hmm. my mind, the Buddha's mind become inseparable mm-hmm. in the nature of emptiness, yes. right? So with that, how do we hold that in, in regard to everything that you just said? If we bring that into this conversation, okay. how do if we, we bring think about that it? In. Yeah. Okay. So the the point of meditating in that way is if you can't imagine something, you can't really recognize it when it happens, or you can't attain it, or so what, or whatever. So when the deity or the Buddha dissolves into you, yeah, you think you whatever understanding big or small you have of emptiness, you call that into mind because the Buddha's mind is empty, it dissolves into you. So, you know, you think like, oh, our minds are are both empty and, and they merge, yeah? And then from the emptiness, you manifest as the deity. So when you're thinking, oh, I'm the same as the Buddha in, in the sense of our minds being empty, you're looking at it from the empty perspective. When you manifest afterwards and visualize yourself as the Buddha or as the deity, then you're moving into the conventional aspect. But because you're still imagining it and you're trying to imagine, you know, well, what would it be like to be a Buddha? What would it be like never to get angry? Then, you know, okay, I appear in the body of the Buddha, but what's my my mind like, and then you start imagining what it could be like to be a Buddha. And then that will open the door to to thinking, oh, I have a potential. You know, I can kind of imagine a little bit what it would be like to never get angry no matter what people did to me. Yeah, I can imagine that. There's the potential in my mind to actually have that quality firm in my mind, not just as as an imagination. Okay? Does that answer your question okay? Okay, let's see. Maybe we'll just finish this page. We can't finish this section. Okay. Well, actually, that's the whole thing. Um, so both both sentient beings and Buddhists possess the primordial pure awareness of Rigpa. And from that perspective, there is no difference between them. That's the ultimate perspective. However, now looking with conventional perspective, there is a great difference between having and not having the two obscurations. So sentient beings must still practice the path because the defilements do not just vanish by themselves. Okay, that's the bottom of 283. Okay. So just saying, oh, well, my mind's empty like the Buddha's mind, therefore I have no defilements. Yeah, you can say whatever you want, but you haven't abandoned the defilements. They're still there. Okay. 
because you haven't realized emptiness. Let me do the next uh, paragraph too, because that uh, pertains to Dzogchen. From the Dzogchen perspective, when an afflictive mental state such as hatred or jealousy is manifest, the rigpa or clear light mind that pervades that coarse mind is not defiled. There is still the potential for rigpa to shine forth. This is the source of statements in the Dzogchen literature that resemble Nagarjuna's assertion in praise to the sphere of reality, where Nagarjuna says, within afflictions, wisdom abides. Yeah, you heard that sometimes? Within afflictions, wisdom abides. Now we think, oh, within afflictions, wisdom abides? Oh, so I have an afflicted mind and I also have, you know, the wisdom that realizes emptiness. And no, that's not what it means, okay? Because here, wisdom refers to the cognitive component of the mind, the clarity and cognizance, not to actual wisdom. So it doesn't literally mean that within the afflictions, wisdom arises. But people hear that and they think, oh, you know, within my afflictions, there's the wisdom realizing emptiness somewhere. You know, it's already there. I just have to bring it out. That is not what this is saying. Okay. It's referring to the clarity and cognizance of the mind in the sense that, you know, Rigpa is, is there. You know, even with an afflicted mind. Okay, so the meaning is that amidst the afflictions, this undefiled, clear cognitive component or rigpa exists. So that makes sense. You know, you can have an afflicted state of mind that still the primary mind is clear and cognizant. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just keep going. In the new translation schools of Tantrayana, so the, the old translation schools, that's Nyingma, new translations are Sakya, Kargyu, and Gelu. Okay, so from the new translation schools, and by the way, old means um, the ones that uh, Shantarakshita and Pabnasambhava brought to Tibet. Then there was a... Um, uh, a king, King Not Long Dharma, who destroyed the Dharma. And then the new translation school happened after that. And uh, that's where Atisha came in. He was very intr- instrumental then. So in the new translation schools of Tantrayana, this primordially pure mind is called the clear light mind. Similar to Rigpa, it continues from our present unawakened state to full awakening. But unlike Rigpa, which is manifest while the coarse consciousnesses are functioning, the innate clear light mind is said to manifest only when the coarse consciousnesses, which include the afflictions, have absorbed at the time of death or due to special tantric meditative practices. Okay, so that's why those of you who had highest yoga tantra 
initiation. You hear about the absorption practices and kind of the eight stages uh, of going from a coarse mind to a subtle mind. And all the first seven stages, those minds are all defiled, and it's only that uh, innate, clear-like mind that is undefiled. Geshe-la said that just yesterday or the day before. He was talking about that. Okay, so Dzogchen and the new translation systems agree that when the coarser minds, uh, coarser levels of mind are manifest, the subtlest mind is also present. But present doesn't necessarily mean manifest. It just means it's there. As long as there is a being, a person, it is present. So if there's a human being, there is the subtle, the subtle clear light mind. There is Rigpa. Yeah. But the new Dzogchen and the new translation systems differ on the issue of whether um, that subtlest mind is active or dormant while the coarse minds are functioning. Dzogchen says that Rigpa is active and manifest at that time. Okay, and so that's why our mind now is the same as from that perspective as the Buddha's mind. But the new translation schools say that the subtlest clear light mind is dormant. And in order to activate it, you have to absorb that the first seven levels of mind to make that uh, innate clear light mind manifest. So Dzogchen teaches a method whereby one can experience Rigpa even while the coarse consciousnesses are functioning. The new translation schools rely on dissolving the coarse consciousnesses and the winds that are their mound by means of special tantric meditation exercises to make manifest the subtlest clear light. Yeah, because the subtlest clear light when the uh, core states of mind are active, it, they're, uh, it's dormant. So both of those traditions agree on the necessity of accessing this subtlest clear mind because uh, when you use it to realize emptiness, it swiftly eradicates obscurations. Okay, so they have some similar assertions about the subtlest mind and some different assertions, yeah. And so the, according to the philosophy, they will teach different uh, methods of meditating on those things. Okay, so we did finish that section. Uh, one or two easy questions. Venerable, um, a question about the first couple of paragraphs. I, I thought that um, if... Well, previously we were talking about pure, referring to the conventional nature of being clear and cognizant. Mm -hmm. Aren't the afflictions also clear and cognizant? They are from, conscious. From the viewpoint of Dzogchen. No, I'm not talking Dzogchen. Yeah. From the normal viewpoint? No, the afflictions are not. Uh, the afflictions have a... a um, 
they are they're clear and cognizant because of being a mind, but that doesn't mean they're pure because when the afflictions are manifest, they are one nature with an affliction. And the the defilement of the affliction permeates the rest of the mental state. Yes, but last week we, I was really trying to understand what does pure mean in this context. And it seemed like we talked about it could be either the, from a conventional point of view or an ultimate point yeah. of view. But the text says that it's talking about the clear and cognizant nature. That's yeah. the purity that we're talking about. So if that's true, it seems like consciousness has... Consciousness can be main minds or mental factors, and they would be clear in the fact that they're not material and they're cognizant because they know an object, albeit you know in a distorted way. But when they're defiled, they don't see the object; they don't know the object accurately. Yes, I I understand that, but aren't they still pure from the sense that they are clear and knowing? They still have clear and knowing, mm -hmm. but they are not called pure at that time. Okay. Because they were, they are what the 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 clear and knowing and the and the uh, of the primary mind and the mental factor are one nature. They can't be dis differentiated at that point. So it's said that the whole mental state is defiled. Yes, but okay. defiled and pure are they're opposite. Um, so you know, I've I've said what I I can't. I don't know what else to say to to help you understand. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. You could say maybe it has the potential to be pure, but it is defiled at that time. That would make sense. It has that potential, but it's defiled at that moment. Yeah. I mean, the dirty water is dirty at that moment. You can't say the dirty water is pure, but it has the potential to be pure at that moment. Okay. But we tend to think of pure as meaning perfect. And that's not necessarily the meaning of it. Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Going back to the section of the text where you're talking about building up excellent qualities uh -huh. habitually, um, cumulatively, but then anger can destroy all of our merit. So doesn't anger also disrupt this buildup of excellent qualities? And are we always starting over again? Well, that's why it's important to counteract anger and it's important to do our practice daily and build up that energy anger it you have to have a really big anger to destroy a lot of merit i don't think you know the 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 amount of merit that's destroyed is comparable to the heaviness of the anger so it isn't that one moment of anger destroys all your moments all your merit from beginningless time okay but it certainly causes a, a disruption in the buildup. Yeah, yeah. And you can feel that in your mind, you know. Like if you sit, and I don't know about you, but if, if I sit and I, 
you know, do my meditation on anger and go round and around and around about why I'm justified and that other guy's an idiot and they shouldn't do that and I should look for revenge and blah, blah, blah. It is hard to sit and meditate on compassion after that. You can feel it right away how it, you know, it knocks away at it. So that's why, I mean, it takes time to... I was saying to build it up to a level where, you know, your anger doesn't completely just, you know, make it difficult for you to meditate again. Okay. But all of us, you know, some we all get angry, right? Yeah. Anybody anybody here never get angry? But we sit down and meditate afterwards. So not all of our good qualities have been destroyed. Yeah. They've been, you know affected by the anger, but we sit down and we build them back up again. Okay, let's dedicate. 